Welcome to the Future of Application Security, a podcast for ambitious leaders who want to build a modern and effective AppSec program. Doing application security right is really hard. Now I'm going to help you build a better future of AppSec at your company by curating the lessons from the leaders. I'm your host, Harshal Parikh, CEO of Tromso. And without further ado, let's get into it. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Future of Application Security. Today, I have Ariel Shen, the Product Security Team Lead from Twilio. Now, if you're not familiar with Twilio, it is a phenomenal developer-centric company that builds communication ecosystem. Ariel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I might not have done enough justice describing Twilio. Do you mind describing what Twilio does? What do you do at Twilio? So Twilio is really hard to describe because we have many products, but one that most people are familiar with is messaging. So anytime you get an automated text message from DoorDash or Uber that says, hey, your food is here, your driver's here, or here's even your security pin code, that's usually powered by Twilio. We have APIs that power messaging, voice, and a couple of other amazing products. And my role at Twilio as a product security team lead is to influence how developers think about security and how we're burning down risk effectively. One of the biggest projects that shipped this past year is democratize vulnerability management. That sounds like a lot of words, but really boils down to building a centralized vulnerability management process, getting buy-in from security and engineering, and socializing that process. That's such a fantastic topic. I love it, especially the use of democratizing vulnerability management. I actually gave a talk on that same topic a few years ago at RSA. The topic was democratizing security, uh, which is a little bit broader than vulnerability management, but it's similar, you know, the same concept where we all talk about security has to be everyone's responsibility and things like that, but how do you actually do it? That's the fundamental key question. And I am very excited about the rest of this conversation because you've done some amazing work around vulnerability management and making it effective in a large company with, what, about 3,000 developers or so? Many, many different dev teams, many acquisitions, globally distributed company, fast-moving, agile dev teams, very modern, also a lot of high expectations from the security team. So Ariel, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, and you actually came from an acquisition from Twilio, right? Tell me a little bit about that journey. Yes. So I joined Jeevan's team, who was at Segment at the time, and I had already known that Twilio had acquired Segment, but we were operating separately. And there was a different type of culture when you have smaller number of developers. I'm not even sure exactly how many were at Segment, but let's say it was around 200 to 400. There's a very different culture than that of an enterprise level organization with 3,000 developers. And so I started off at Segment for about six months, and then we started merging with the Twilio product security team. And then I think a year in, I started transitioning fully to supporting Twilio. Got it. Fantastic. And when you say product security at Twilio, do you support every single product that Twilio sells? So our team is quite small. At 10 security product security engineers, we cannot prioritize every single product. We do have processes in place to prioritize. But yes, if any product team wanted to come out and get help from us, we would then prioritize that request uh, and try to make sure that we've done a good job. Right, right. And Twilio also has acquired a few companies, continues with the acquisitions. Uh, does your team get involved in those aspects as well? 
Yes, depending on the acquisition. So we don't treat every single acquisition the same, but uh, coming from segment, we're an acquisition. And so we do care about security segment. Uh, and same goes with Sengrid as well. And a couple of other acquisitions that have a smaller footprint, we also prioritize those as well. Right. Fantastic. So before we dive deeper into the topic of vulnerability management, if you can tell me a little bit about the scope or the responsibilities of your broader team, what are all the things that you all do at a high level? It's a good question. So right now we're focused on building application and product security. That means building those foundational programs so we can scale our influence. And that includes threat model trainings, threat modeling, uh, includes using tooling like SAST and DAS and edge scanning. And it also includes kind of building those relationships with our stakeholders. So if that's working with compliance teams, working with cloud security, we have a pretty broad approach to things as where how do we influence the developer to do the right thing? And anything that comes along with that, we're involved in it. So throughout the entire software development lifecycle, during the design stage to after they've released that code, we'd like to be involved. So that's identifying vulnerabilities at that end state, identifying risks during that design state. That's fascinating. So that I can imagine many, many different initiatives, manual, automated, engagement with different stakeholders, engagement with many, many different teams across this large developer ecosystem of uh, several thousand developers. Do you all have programs, you know, like to partner with the dev teams? Some people have security champions programs, security partners program. How do you scale a team of 10 product security engineers to 3000 developers? So we very recently split the team. So seven engineers work on the central team and that's supporting the entire organization. A lot of times that's through operational work, uh, kind of requests that come through a workflow. Mm -hmm. And that the team I'm part of, which is the embed team is just that. We embed with a specific part of the org. So we embed with the communications BU, which is where messaging sits in. And we have a couple of other business units in there as well. And so, we try to influence that way of building this partnership, understanding their ecosystem, their risks, because understanding telecom is extremely different than understanding segment and the tools in segment. And so having that experience, building those relationships are extremely important. And we're also rebuilding our security champions program. We want to better train our engineers and have them feel more motivated to become security champions. So that's something my teammate is currently working on rebuilding. Right, right. And I think um, Colleen has talked about the Security Champions program and how to motivate them. I remember hearing her in some conversation, some forum somewhere. So I know you guys have built a pretty interesting program to motivate the developers and have them actively contribute and participate in the Security Champions program. Yeah. So Colleen, I've been referring to kind of the segment security culture there. At the scale at Twilio, we are facing such different problems, and that's why we're focused on rebuilding that program, because mm -hmm. the number one priority is scale. It's we have 10 product security engineers and almost 3,000 developers, and then many, many views. I think we have over 35 business units within the org, and then more acquisitions that also are kind of need to be added to that number. And so it's a hard problem to solve and it requires just a lot of foundation building in order to get to that point. Um, I think with a smaller size to get people really excited about security, it's pretty straightforward to do. It's a bit more complex with these types of numbers. Right, right, right. Yeah, and especially if you talk about the process and the people and the governance and all of those things become very tricky because of such diversity in the environment as well. 
So let's go down to the topic that both of us are incredibly passionate about, vulnerability management. Tell me a little bit about why you all decided to even look into that space. Why was that important for you? So coming from Segment, we had a centralized vulnerability management process. So it was very easy for us to see all of the vulnerabilities for Segment in one place. And there was one way of doing about it. And engineers understood our process. There was no confusion. When I came over to Twilio, it wasn't the same exact story. It was very segmented by team. And so if you were working with team A or team B, you were getting a very different story. And I had interviewed a bunch of developers and a lot of times they were saying, I'm confused. I don't know what to do. And in fact, I just wait for someone to tell me what to do. And that meant we had breached SLAs because we're only telling them what to do when we're kind of against the wall and say, hey, it's now time to fix this vulnerability. You are over 400% breached on this ticket. And so we'd see that a lot in those dialogues where there was like an SLA breach and we didn't have a great process because you shouldn't be responding when you've already breached. A lot of your work should be ensuring that they're not breaching those tickets, that they're notified with ample time. They know that that ticket exists. And to me, it seemed like a straightforward problem to solve. You're really solving for what I thought that time was a process problem, that there are multiple processes that are confusing developers, duplicating work and creating a lack of visibility and accountability within the organization. And so I thought, let's democratize this vulnerability management process. Let's make risks everyone's responsibility and find a path forward. And one way was to adopt how Segment was doing their vulnerability management process. Yeah. Okay. That's pretty cool. So what if you didn't solve this problem? What would have been the outcome? That's an interesting question. If we never solved this problem, because we did face a lot of blockers. And at the end of the day, it was extremely important that we had cleaned up kind of some of the debt that had accumulated. And the analogy I think of is, what's the worst case scenario if you don't clean your room? Does that kind of mean that your life is over or that like things are really bad? Uh, it really just means that getting to do things in your bedroom or feeling at peace or being able to accomplish things is a lot more difficult because you have a lot of things blocking. You've got a hamper in front of you or you stub your toe on something that you left on your floor. Things that you could have prevented, things that kind of give you these like bad impacts that you don't like to feel. That's kind of how I see it was cleaning up house a bit. Right, right. Were there any other external drivers like customers or compliance regulations or, you know, GRC teams trying to get you to do things? That was part of it. It was driving down risk. At the end of the day, we had a hard time seeing what what is our total breach to SLA? How many tickets are out of SLA? That would have been a very hard number to identify. And because the values weren't standardized, Mm -hmm. Um, You weren't going to ever get an accurate number, even though you put in this extraordinary amount of effort to calculate it. So that was one of the reasons it was we need more visibility in order to create that accountability. Um, We have breached SLAs, but if we can't tell you how many, we can't start chipping away at those breached SLAs. Yeah. And especially who or which teams have more breached SLAs versus less breached SLAs. Because if you want to actually fix those breached SLAs and you had to go figure out who are the teams that need help, right? So getting to that level of data, all of that stuff is pretty difficult. So tell me a little bit about once you decided that, okay, you want to solve this problem, what was the first step after that? So the first quarter was to discover what the current problems were, what the current state is, what's working and what's not working. So I interviewed multiple security teams who had their own vulnerability management process. 
also interviewed developers. I interviewed engineering managers. I wanted to understand for each stakeholder how they perceive their current vulnerability management process. And so they're working for the cloud security team. What steps did they take? And what's the cloud security engineer going to tell me? It kind of felt a little bit like investigative journalism where going to each party and getting a story and trying to piece it together. And at the end of that, I'd actually created this flow chart of here's what the actual vulnerability management process looks at Twilio. And it was this crazy complex diagram where if you said yes or no to one decision, you're going one way. And it, it had so many branches and no one had seen this type of diagram before to understand how complex it is. That's kind of the current seat that you're living in. You don't realize how complicated it is. It's just that is how you exist. That is how you move forward in identifying reporting a vulnerability at Twilio. I don't see a different way forward. And so that diagram really helped people understand this is how crazy complex the system currently is. Yeah, and it's so fascinating that even within security, like even at a smaller company in security, multiple teams could have very disjointed processes and and you wouldn't realize it until you actually go through that discovery. And the worst part of it all is people who are not in the security teams, like engineering managers and those uh, those teams, they might not even understand any of this stuff, right? Like they might not even know because they manage their own sprint in a little bit different way. I'm kind of curious if you ran into those situations where you ended up discovering new things that you had no idea about, like this existed during this discovery process. I think the biggest thing for me was exactly what you said, that developers don't care which security team you are. When I'm coming in, I'm not coming in as a product security engineer on the embed team. I'm coming as someone from security. They don't care about the distinctions between product, cloud security, and they shouldn't have to care. It's We should have a unified front when it comes to working with engineers because part of this experience is a whole experience. It's not do X, Y, Z for cloud security, do ABC for product security, and then another team will then pull your time. Because that's an engineer, they're thinking about security very broadly, not in terms of these industries that we have created within security. So that to me was a very kind of humanizing experience to understand we're not thinking about it in these categories that we've created, but we're thinking about it holistically. And that's why we needed to create one vulnerability management process for everyone. I love it. Love it. I think that's a very strategic insight right there in terms of giving developers a consistent experience, which should span every function within security that integrates or that works with development teams. But that also throws a number of different challenges because fundamentally, the types of things, the types of issues and the challenges that come with it from AppSec, ProdSec versus cloud or infrastructure security, they're also very different. So the process potentially could be different. The tooling potentially could be different. The way you implement it potentially could be different. Just one example is on the infra side, you deal with massive volumes of very similar types of data. Because then you have, you know, for example, a patch missing, but the same patch is missing on thousands of systems, right? So it's the same fix, maybe uh, to the underlying base image or the base container or what have you. But in the world of apps, like if you're looking at bug bounty data or, you know, DAS data or pen testing data, architecture review data, it's not at the same volume as an infrastructure issue, but it's more higher fidelity, except for SAS, but it's more higher fidelity in a lot of cases, right? So did you have to consider those differences when you're building a holistic vulnerability management program? Yes. That is something we deal with very consistently is the different types of findings and the volume that they're created 
and the relationship it has to a developer. And so some of the things that we would support on the cloud security side is static access keys or outdated user accounts that need to be rotated. In those situations, we were reporting kind of one by one. And so a lot of times it's, it has one action, maybe it has one owner as able to clear out this backlog. And so we're discussing ways forward as to how do we systematically create this change without causing too much work on the engineers so that they're getting assigned all of these tickets. That's still a problem that we're working through because there are different approaches. And I think at the end of the day, this program is meant to just hold on to those tickets. But if there are ways to improve and build on a program that says, we're going to remove this cost of vulnerabilities, we always want to incentivize those approaches. And another category in which it was really, really difficult for us to all agree on was categorization. For the product application security space, we just use the bug crowd vulnerability rating taxonomy because it's come from bug crowd. The bug crowd ASCs or the application security engineers that bug crowd hires, they'll fill that in for us. And so to us, that's automated when we see that value versus cloud security and our previous vulnerability management team were using Nessus categories and their own, they have this thing called TCSS categories. And so we couldn't agree on one way to say, hey, what are these categorizations? And then other teams wanted us to use CWSS. And so that was something that was really, really difficult for us. At the end of the day, we've decided that this is a future problem. Uh, something that we can do to kind of solve it in this intermediate term is we'll use different categories and then we'll map them across the board. So yes, I'm using Bug Crowd VRT and Cloud Security is using another version. We can at least map it at the end. Let's not make it too complicated and solve every single problem. There are some things we can say, we're going to hold off on solving this for now. Why did you need categories in the first place? So that's really important when you're looking at holistically at the program and the vulnerabilities. You want to know what your top 10 risks are. I don't want to just solve tickets and not ever see kind of an end in sight or be able to pull meaningful insights from the findings we're seeing. I want to see what is our number one vulnerability type. Is it broken access control? Is it SQL injection? Is it cross-site scripting? Because a lot of times the OWASP top 10 doesn't reflect your organization's reality. So I would like to see what are our top risks, and that's important to our GRC teams to see our top 10 risks and building out those risk reports. And that's also important for me as a person who influences developers to say, hey, this is our number one issue at the company. And these are the types of issues that we want to fix. We train engineers so that they are understanding and noticing these before they build it and that we're influencing them to always be thinking about these top problems. Yeah, that's fascinating. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about what was next. Or I guess in discovery, I'm guessing you learned a number of different processes, people, the problems that you have to solve for and things like that. What was next after that? So I'd created a report. Uh, I created a very comprehensive report because a lot of people hadn't been communicating with these other teams. So it was buy-in. Here's the current state of the world right here at product security or at uh, Tulio. Here's the current state for our vulnerability management. And there was a lot of pushback, a lot of people who felt that, hey, this is the way we do things. It would require a massive amount of investment to move it to another state. And so we spent a lot of time talking through the benefits of a centralized vulnerability management process and the current pain points that we are experiencing. I think I had boiled it down to five pain points through all the interviews. First was that developers are really confused. They don't understand the process. If they don't understand the process, they're going to wait till the very end and you're going to get SLAs that breached. 
I believe the second one was that security engineers were duplicating work. And so ownership was a big problem at Twilio. And what we had found was that cloud security engineers, bond management engineers, and product security engineers had their own process for maintaining ownership. So for some, that actually meant manually updating their automations so that the values type, because they had to pull from multiple sources and it was a spreadsheet that they were manually updating. For others, that meant they had created this automation that actually would attribute it to the next layer up. And at one time it actually assigned a ticket to our CEO. And so that that probably wasn't the best. And the other one was, it was ticket by ticket. They were identifying by ticket by ticket. They had no automations. And so it was, why are we all tackling the problem so differently? Trying to remember the other three, but one definitely was that there was no metrics, no visibility. I think some teams had great visibility, but it wasn't standardized with the other teams. And then one other team had actually no visibility. They weren't tracking any metrics on their vulnerability management process. And so forgetting the other two, but we had five pain points that we presented and that resonated with quite a few folks. So no one disagreed with the pain points, but they did disagree on what is that path forward? And what was really helpful was that we had built this program at Segment, the company that was acquired by Twilio, and we were able to show the success of the program and why certain aspects of it worked. So I think like having the thing actually built versus imagining this proposed solution was a lot easier for people to digest was, here's what our relationships with developers look like. Here's what our metrics looks like. Here's what our SLAs look like. It was a lot easier of a sell than I think if I had to just imagine a world where vulnerabilities are fixed in time and developers like working with security. Uh, it really was, here's what reality looks like on the segment side. We do have to adjust for the scale of Twilio, but we can reach this state where people are quite happy with our vulnerability management program. Right. And having that data set really, really helps. So what that also tells me is like, if somebody is starting this from scratch at a larger company, maybe try to start with one specific business unit, achieve some success and use the data and the success metrics from that smaller business unit to then socialize it and spread it and expand it across the rest of the organization. That could be an interesting strategy. The hard part about that is that you then have two programs. You have one program for this one team where you're reporting on and you've got a lot of eyes on and then another program for another team that is kind of completely operating separately. And I think if you create this like disjointed experience, it does have a ripple effect on just how you're treating the teams, how the SLAs. And so a big part of it was this does have to impact the entire org. It's right. can't continue to have these disjointed experiences because a lot of times you actually don't have as much time as you think for a project. You think, hey, I could work on this for multiple years. I've got all the time in the world. And it's no, you actually are limited for a project like this. We're really limited to a year. That's something I take with me to every new project is we spend a lot of time on V1 and people get a little bit less excited about V2 because they may have been burned out by V1. Yeah. So getting it right the first time was really, really important because we really did run out of time to keep iterating and spend the amount of investment we did on V1 as we did on V2. Right. What did that actually look like? So other than you, what types of resources who are involved in these things? Is it like a massive undertaking of many, many security engineers, or was it super light? And how did that work? In the beginning, it was just me. And then I was able to convince them to give me a TPM. And he was extremely helpful in organizing. And especially for the socialization parts where there are even 
3235BUs. And so it was really helpful to have the TPM help guide me. And a lot of times it was the support of my director. But it really, in terms of the engineering effort, was me. I did get more engineering resources as we got to crunch time of, we need to deliver by this end date. But resources was very challenging. For a majority of the project, it was just me to, in the beginning, play this socializing, getting buy-in and trying to convince leaders and then work on building and being like, please, I need more resources to build this on time. And then I had a a bowl of extra help in terms of, hey, let's socialize this. Um, I also had to build the relationships with the other teams, uh, cloud security and vault management, in order to then migrate their issues and have them adopt the new program. But in terms of driving the change for this program, it did start with me. We were able to increase members, but it did start with me. Right, right. So can you list out some objections that you heard as you were socializing this, as you were trying to get buy-in from the broader organization? What are the common things that you heard in terms of pushback? I don't think it was a common thing. There were things that I really just disagreed with. Uh, There were just these small things on, we had all these different processes where people didn't want to let go. So the way we had done risk extensions was that another team would handle that risk extension. They would re-rate the ticket and they would then pull in the product security engineer and the software engineer to figure out a new due date. What we wanted to do was actually create an extension process within the original workflow. So if you're not going to fix your ticket within time, you have to get an extension dependent on the severity. So if it's a P1, you go to your VP or your GM. It's a P2, director, senior director, P3s and P4s. You can go to the engineering manager. And they did not like this. They had said, hey, we need our security risk engineers to go in and calculate it. No one else could do that work. Only the security risk engineer can do those calculations. This process is really important. You can't just kind of merge those processes. And that took a lot of influence. It took a lot of talking to leaders about what this change would look like, how this would help, how this can kind of re-guide their team in terms of thinking about risk, and also us thinking about risk. Because a lot of times what people thought was, just gonna make it a risk ticket, I'm never gonna think about it again, or I'm just gonna throw it over the wall. We wanted to make it so that that extension process was in your ticket and the same stakeholders were there. We don't need to introduce another security engineer to then tell you, what if we did 10 days instead of 30 days? We can do that within the ticket and we can rely on our engineering teams to make that decision themselves. Right. That's democratizing security right there, right? You give them an option or you give them a choice to make a decision but you also hold them accountable for that decision, right? So, so you see, so you get the engineering leadership to approve or not a particular extension, risk acceptance, what have you. That's fantastic. Did you ever run into pushback from the engineering team saying, I never had to deal with any of this and now you have SLAs and now you have all these things that you're making me follow? I don't think that was the biggest pushback. It really was, there was a bit of a learning curve. So we had switched from teams creating vulnerability tickets on their team's board to a single board. That means vulnerabilities exist elsewhere from where the team does work. And for us, those were just, there were some organizational constraints with how we manage our Jira instance. I think there is a world in which you could kind of create a vulnerability ticket on each team's board and have the benefits of a centralized board, but we were limited by uh, some external factors. So we did have to move over to a single board I gave us a lot more control 
in terms of what that ticket would look like, how that ticket would react to certain things. And so that's kind of how we proceeded. And there were a lot of problems with just getting people to understand the new workflow state. So before a ticket was just open, in progress, closed. There was nothing else. And there were some guides that would kind of tell you, like, here's how you reach out to security. Here's what a vulnerability is. But they wouldn't tell you what you needed to do in each state. They weren't very explicit about it. So I created these guides, like here's this vulnerability management primer for everyone with screenshots. I did a recording of how to use it in the perspective of an engineer. And when we released it, we set out these communications, email, Slack. No one had read this primer or very few people had read this primer. And a lot of people were like, what's a risk owner? Why am I assigned as the risk owner? What does need security triage mean? There are all of these new terms that people weren't comfortable with. And I had really changed the look of the ticket in Jira. I'd use tabs instead of kind of including everything in the description. It looked very different. It felt very different. And there were a lot of new terms. And the communications we had sent out, no one had read it because there's so many communications being sent out to everyone. It's really hard to find that signal. Of, this is something I need to read. And so Twilio is also a very email-centric company, and there are people still using Reply All. We'll see a lots and lots of Reply All. So you see lots and lots of people muting their emails. And so it was very, very hard to get across. Here's how you use this new process, because it's part of a democratized vulnerability management process. You're now heavily reliant on the users to do their part. Kind of like users need to vote in a democracy and practice their civic duty in order for a democracy to work. So we needed users to use our vulnerability management process to understand their responsibilities in order for us to democratize it. And socializing that aspect was very, very difficult at the scale of Twilio. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We ran it in one of my previous companies. We ran into the exact same problem introducing new states and developers don't live in the world of security and risk, so they don't understand this. We had one specific state called pending validation, meaning the developer might have fixed it, but somebody from security needs to go and validate whether is that the correct fix or not. And nobody understood what that actually meant. Like, what, what are you validating? I already merged my code. Like, why is this pending validation? It's done already, right? So it takes a lot of education for sure. And I love the fact that you're focusing on socializing of the entire concept as well. What did you end up doing in terms of just, you know, educating the broader community in your company about this new way of managing vulnerabilities? Is it just emails? Yeah, I know you mentioned emails, but what else did you do? The emails were ineffective. So we quickly realized no one had read the primary. I was counting the Slack reactions. I mean, that was a really good gauge to see if people had actually read my message. And I was also counting the views on the Google Doc and the Wiki page to see how many people had actually read these new announcements and these documents. It was very, very few. I think it was like less than 40 people. And the Slack reaction was like limited to like 10. So we took some time and we said, what, what's going to work? Like what, how do we socialize this? And so the most expensive option was really to go to every single business unit and have a roadshow. And that's exactly what we did. We were like, it's really hard to get across a message. So let's actually start engaging with everyone. And so we had 32 meetings to talk to all of these different business units about this new process, how to use this new process and frequently asked questions. And we had created multiple presentations, some that were five minutes, some that were 10 minutes. We had action items at the end of that presentation for folks to follow. 
And at first I thought it would just be a way to get the message across. But the other benefit was since we went super broad and we I prioritized breath, we saw a lot of folks say, thanks for coming to our meeting and telling us about this new process. I haven't interacted with security in many years. And so having you come and present to us was really meaningful. And they were able to ask us some questions that uh, they couldn't get the answers to. And so it provided just a really great opportunity for us to connect with our developers and to build that relationship a little bit. And beyond that, it's many leaders knew about it. Since we prioritized breath, it was many leaders were in the know. And so I always tell people that we took a bottoms up and a tops down approach because we did go to the leaders. We had buy-in from the security leadership side. So security leadership was really influencing engineering leadership and telling them, we do have to focus this year on our P0s and our P1s. We don't want any of them to be out of SLA. So we're gonna take these steps to ensure that we have this operational excellence across the company. And so having those roadshows, having our security leadership communicate this to the leadership then the other aspect was anytime an engineer would ask us questions, I would take utmost care in ensuring that they got to the place that they needed to be, that they weren't stuck in this block state. They had this question hanging around forever. I wanted to ensure that they had a good relationship with these tickets. Because I think when you create these like automated systems, sometimes it feels like you just want to be like, call agent. I just, I want to talk to a real human. I don't want these automated responses anymore. None of this. I, I keep getting these automated messages. And so I wanted to ensure that engineers felt that if they ran into something, that they were in an unexpected state, that we were there to support them. And so that meant reaching out on the ticket comments sending out broad communications and also creating a help channels that folks can respond, being very responsive in those different channels. It's when you're trying to get buy-in in that initial state, it's really, really important that you build those good, strong relationships very early on because you don't want people to get really frustrated with this program and to hate on it. And I think one of the biggest signals that this was working was that other teams were asking, how do we create a system like this? Yes. We saw a lot of great success. I love working with these tickets. They're very straightforward. I would like to do the same for my team. And that's when I was like, we did the right thing and how we socialize it. Parts of it was very, very expensive, but the payoffs, I think, were numerous. Right. That's amazing. We had a similar experience in my previous role as well, where we implemented this new process and the quality engineering team came to us and said, hey, we need to borrow your process for quality related issues, which feels very, very satisfying, right? You did something that other people want to copy and replicate. That's amazing. Tell me a little bit about um, KPIs and metrics. You mentioned some of these things as challenges early on. And one of the things that I hear all the time from people I talk to is Jira is great for managing all this work, tracking tasks and workflows and all of that stuff. But reporting is a little bit tricky, especially for security related metrics where you want to see, you know, how many tickets are out of compliance? What is the MTTR? You know, what's the burn down chart and st stuff like that. It, it becomes a little bit tricky. If you have anything you can share around metrics KPIs. That was something of a big concern, right? That was one of the pay points was we didn't have great visibility and accountability. And so we created multiple dashboards. It was, there are these different roles that interact with the bone management process. You have the security engineer who needs to triage their tickets. They at times need to assign owners. They need to explain why a ticket was rated a certain severity, or they need to reach out in the ticket comments, or they need to validate that it was remediated. And so we created a need security triage, and that kind of helps with our operational workload. 
And that second dashboard that we had created was for the engineers, not for their managers or the leadership, but was for engineers to understand all of the tickets that kind of currently exist and responsible for their team. That's something that they can review on a weekly basis so that they know their security operational workload. And then that third dashboard is something we're still working on, iterating on, is for leadership. So we have multiple types of leaders. So we have securing leaders, we have engineering leaders, and it's how do you create a dashboard that tells them immediately what they need to take action on. And we had kind of multiple folks working on these dashboards and it was, they wanted metrics like, who do I yell at? They want to see that immediately right away. Who do I yell at? And they also wanted to understand what a bad or a good score was. If you say five, you've got five X. It's what does that mean? <laughs> if I don't have the context as to why that number five matters, is five good, is five bad? We needed to give context on, okay, we're looking for average days out of SLA. What is a good average days out of SLA for, let's say, informational or P4 finding versus a P1? And then we had our leadership decide that we are going to focus on zero P0s and P1s out of SLA. And I think that's a really great approach is you shouldn't always strive to do everything. People have lots of things that they need to focus on and narrowing it down to we want to ensure that we have no criticals that are out of SLA. Uh, we thought that was really important. And so we have weekly meetings. Uh, some of them, I think, are monthly with uh, different engineering leadership with their security partners to ensure that they're meeting those goals. So one question I have on that is in those meetings, let's say you have your security leadership, you have engineering leadership, whoever is responsible for that risk. Who presents those KPIs and numbers? Is it somebody from security saying, here are the metrics, or is it the engineering leadership saying, these are my metrics? Who talks about those things? Right now it's security driven. So we have this concept of BSOs, which are business information security officers. They're kind of like CISOs for a specific business unit. And they'll go in with their partners. They've already built this great relationship because they focus on other things beyond just the vulnerability management metrics. They talk through longstanding security problems, Things just kind of the goal of the security for their program, their roadmaps. We also have this thing called non-negotiables, which are kind of non-negotiables for your team to have. And so they're already having those conversations and security will then present those metrics and get context on each ticket and then try to drive it down, get more resources. And there is kind of that bargaining there to get security items prioritized and help meet our objectives. So but that is security driven. Got it. Fantastic, Ariel. This has been such an amazing conversation. We talked everything from the beginning of why this program was necessary, how you discovered the current state, what the solution potentially looked like, socializing it. We didn't get to talk too much about the actual pilot and the implementation, but I'm glad we could talk about some of the metrics and reporting and measuring the success of this program as well. Unfortunately, this is all the time we have on this podcast. I bet we can talk for another more hour continuing the same topics and conversations. Thank you so much for your time here, Ariel. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Future of Application Security. If you've enjoyed this episode or you are new to the show, I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any episode. And if you like the podcast, I'd be grateful if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.